Good morning, fellers. Some people were discouraged by the ice today. Not us. No sorry, Bob. I believe Lon got it right. I think it's I think we don't have Amen Bible study if the building blows up. I think that was the policy. Uh, but I'm not real sure of that. If the building blows up, we'll just go next door over there. Uh, I, know it's, I know that's the policy on Sunday morning. I think it is on Thursday morning, too. Guys, we've been studying the kingdom of God in parables in Matthew 13, and we've seen how important the kingdom is. It's very critical. Uh, and uh, knowing about the kingdom requires action, and that action would be, would be faith and repentance, or in the immortal words of our vice president, get a shotgun. It's one or the other. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's... That tape is going to play for years. Get a shotgun, says the vice president. Well, I suggest not a shotgun, but something more important. That is repentance and faith as we look at the kingdom. And we have seen that the kingdom uh, is real and it is authentic. But there are different soils, different responses to the kingdom based on different soils. And we, we, we answered the question why the kingdom is rejected. Well, it's rejected because uh, sometimes there's infertile soil into which these seeds of the kingdom are placed. We asked why there are weeds, and we looked at the theodicy that Jesus presents in the kingdom of the wheat and the tares. And then we asked the question, why is it so small, so tiny, so imperceptible? And we saw that although it's tiny now, it's growing to be a mighty kingdom. Although it's imperceptible, one day it'll be widely known. And now we, we want to ask the question, why do we have to wait? And uh, we'll see why we should wait. As we look at the last three parables of the seven parables in Matthew 13. Uh, the kingdom of, of the, rather, the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. The parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the, the net and the fish. Let's begin with verse uh, 44 and uh, read through the end of the chapter. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to, uh, they said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, 
Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Okay, we want to notice first of all in in verses 44 through 46 in these two parables that are parallel that the kingdom is of great value. The kingdom is of great value. That's what Jesus is teaching them. That's why you wait with your investment because it is enormously valuable. And you'd be very silly, foolish, unwise to cash in. Keep your investment. The kingdom is of great value. Now, let's look at this story, first of all, of the kingdom uh, being like treasure hidden in a field. And it looks here as though something unethical is going on in Jesus' parable. Here's a man who finds a treasure in a field. He found it. And he, he doesn't tell the owner of the field and uh, he buys the field and then reveals the treasure. It looks like it's a little bit, you know, finders, keepers, losers, weepers sort of story. But this is actually um, a, not a common, but not a, a totally uh, infrequent event in Israel. Let me tell you why. Uh, we did not have um, First Tennessee Bank or anything else like that for people to save their money. So they would often put it in a box and bury it, you know, five paces south of the old oak tree, you know, 20 paces <laughs> east of, <laughs> of the terebinth tree. Uh, and they would especially bury their riches when a foreign army was coming to invade. They didn't want the army to invade their home and take all their treasures, so they would put them out in the field, hide them, and then after the foreign armies had come, occupied for a season and gone, Then they could take back up their residence, go out to the field, get their treasure out, and have their savings. Of course, a lot of times those people were either killed or exiled, in which case the treasure was sitting there in the field and no one knew about it. So it was a truly hidden treasure. This happened, you know, in all kinds of uh, parts of the world where there is no banking system, there's no security, uh, people would hide their treasures. And then what would happen is uh, the new owner of the field who knew nothing about the treasure, had nothing to do with it, would hire someone to plow his field. And the man's plowing along and all of a sudden, clunk. Doesn't sound like he hit a rock. See, it felt like it was something else, like, like wood or something. So he stops uh, his animals, puts his plow on the side, and he starts digging around. And he finds, lo and behold, here's a treasure. <laughs> He's going, oh, my stars. And so he he looks in the box, and sure enough, there's gold and silver and all kinds of things. So what the law allowed was that you you were not required to reveal to the owner that you, a worker on his farm, had discovered a treasure. So 
he just put the treasure right back where it was, five paces south of the old oak tree, 20 paces east of the terebinth tree. He just put it right back there and marked it in his mind, got it where it was, and then went about his business and plowed the rest of the field. And then the next day, he started a process of gathering up everything he owned. And uh, he would gather everything he owned, and then he would make an offer to the owner of the farm and offer a, a good price and pay a reasonable price for the farm, and he ends up with a farm and a treasure. Now, that, that happened in ancient Israel. And Jesus, once again, we've seen in his parables, he takes something that's very common to people, a story they understand, because it happens. It's in current events. And he's going to show them how that analogizes the kingdom. So uh, this story is, is not actually unethical. It is unusual. But notice several things about the kingdom of God that are taught here. Jesus is saying, first of all, just as a man, just a common working man, can recognize treasure when he sees it. One who is entering the kingdom of heaven looks at it and recognizes its value. And of course, the value of the kingdom is a personal, intimate relationship with the king of this universe. Uh, when you look at those unbelievable pictures on your computer screen of, of the galaxy that we live in and the neighboring galaxy, and then you see these little dots, those distant galaxies, a billion galaxies, and you know personally the owner and manager of the entire universe. Uh, that's quite a privilege. So someone who sees the kingdom, sees its enormous value of just having, being friends with the ruler of the universe, and then, of course, uh, sees the kingdom in terms of its value for us, that we're going to be inheriting tremendous riches. And then you'll notice the kingdom is also displayed here because we not only properly appraise the value of the kingdom, but we sacrifice in order to get it. Look what the man does. He sells all that he has. He sells all that he has. Now, this is a common principle in the kingdom of God. It's a common principle for a disciple of Jesus Christ. You cannot follow him unless you sell all that you have. In other words, everything is laid aside. Uh, Luke makes this entirely important, uh, clear to us in Luke 14, 33, where he, he cites the words of Jesus Christ who tells us, unless a man leaves behind everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. So it is all or nothing. And that's one of the principles Jesus is displaying in this very common story about a, a plowman who founds a, finds a treasure. He is willing to give up everything for it. Gentlemen, you know, if, if, if you're not in the kingdom, then your life is just going like this all the time. You know, after, let's see, what day was it? Uh, after Tuesday, if you're in the U.S. stock market, you go, man, it's a good day. It's a, I'm so excited. I just made a lot of money today. Or if it's at the end of yesterday, oh, it's a terrible day, awful, terrible day. You know, the, the, the stock market tanks. And you're just up and down and around. And it's very futile in this life. And what Jesus is teaching us, as we'll see through these parables, it's very futile in the life to come. But when you, when you see the kingdom and its value and you actually believe you can lay hold of it, this is another thing about the kingdom. You have to believe you can lay hold of it. 
And that by giving your life to Jesus Christ, you're going to get the kingdom. You need to believe that. He promises it. But when you see the value of the kingdom and you see the accessibility of the kingdom, then of course it compels you to give up everything beside. Now what does that look like today? Does it mean we should all sell our houses, our cars, and empty our bank accounts and, and go begging on the street? I don't think so. Uh, although some have done that. St. Francis of Assisi did it. But I don't think that's what's being required of us. I think something even more important is being required of us. And that is to so live our lives that everything we have, everything that we use, everything that we save, everything that, that we aspire to is deployed into the service of the kingdom of God. Now that's huge. In some ways it's a lot easier to check out of a very wealthy society like the one that we live in. In some ways, that'd be a lot simpler. It's a lot more difficult to stay in this society, try to minister to people around you, and have your entire estate, everything that you own, given up for the kingdom of God. And it's a continual struggle. I know men tell me this over and over again. I'm just not quite sure how to do it. And I tell you, I'm not quite sure how to do it either. But all we can do is try. And the most important thing is your heart. Is it your intent? Now, for those of you who are members of Second Presbyterian Church, that's very weak always provides a great challenge for a greedy man. Are we going to look at the world? This is our World Missions Conference week, as Lon mentioned. Are we going to look at the world in all of its abject poverty with 2 billion people living on less than a dollar a day, for example, where the average income in this world is around $10,000 a year? Are we going to look at this world that is desperately needy, that has another 1.8 billion people in it that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ and have no opportunity unless we send a missionary to their microculture. We're going to look at a world like that and just go on as though there, there are no needs around us, that there's no compelling action to be taken. Or are we going to look at the world and look at the kingdom in all of its value and say, I want to give myself to that kingdom. Some of you have made some really good financial investments over the past years. And you, you can look at your uh, investments and say and be quite proud of yourself and feel secure about your financial uh, situation. But I'm going to tell you something. That's all coming to an end. This world is coming to an end. The only investments you're really making that, that have eternal value are the ones you make in the kingdom of God. And I can look back over my investments that I've made, the ones that I'm most satisfied with right now, and certainly one day it's going to be even clearer to me, are the ones that I've made in the kingdom of God. And this is where generosity comes from, gentlemen. It comes from someone who, who apprehends the value of the kingdom of God and leaves everything behind in the sense that now everything is deployed into his service. So if you look at the city of Memphis, with all of our neighborhoods that are in tremendous need, you need some partners who will help you get involved in those neighborhoods, and there, some of them are in this room who are full-time ministry to deploy the resources of the wealthier population into the neighborhoods of the less wealthy. There are some in this city who are very lost in, in sin's darkness and need the light of the gospel. Uh, the kingdom is of great value, and it requires that we mobilize everything without exception, everything. This man sold all that he had and put it into practice, uh, put it into the service of the kingdom. And this actually is the number one testimony that you have in your life. 
when someone really gets to know you, what do they find out about your aspirations, about what you're trying to pull off in life? What are your real goals and objectives? If they really get to know you, they're going to find that out. It's impossible not to, unless you really are a closed-up person and don't know how to share your life with anybody. But if you have any friends or family who really get to know you, what are they going to get to know? T.S. Eliot said, the greatest proof of Christianity is not how far a man can analyze his reasons for belief, but how far in practice he stakes his life on what he believes. I agree with him. That's the greatest proof of Christianity, how far in practice you stake your life on what you believe. And people who get to know you will find out what you stake your life on. That's your greatest testimony. It's your greatest investment. And I just plead with you this morning, take the opportunity, once again, those of you at Second Presbyterian, take the opportunity to take a look at yourself again and whether you've really perceived the value of the kingdom. If you haven't, uh, World Missions is a great opportunity to get involved. Uh, certainly you want to be tithing uh, to the storehouse. You want to be tithing to your churches wherever you are. But World Missions gives you a chance to go even beyond the tithe. Or if you're just starting out, uh, you can make your contributions to, to the international mission as part of your tithe. But the, even the better way to do it is put your tithe in the storehouse and then look at the Great Commission. And for those of us who happen to live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, certainly can do more than a mere 10%. So we look at the world and its needs and we start making investments. And uh, if you're at Second Presbyterian, one of your best investments is to go with the mutual fund, the World Missions uh, Portfolio. It's very well invested, and it's, diver it's a diverse investment, and it goes in various continents of the world with some major epicenters there and a high-performance team of high-character missionaries that have been interviewed and are sustained and uh, monitored very closely. It's a very nice little mutual fund there, if you will, uh, in the world missions area. But there are other organizations. Uh, I served on the board for years on, of World Relief, who takes relief and development to the poorest, most vulnerable people in the world and does it in the name of Christ through the local churches. Uh, that's a great organization. There are many other very fine organizations, some here in this city. But you need to be studying those organizations so that you can make your best investment into the kingdom of God here and around the world. Now, that's what this man did. That's what Jesus is talking about. He perceived the value of the kingdom. He sold everything that he had. He put everything he had into this one effort. And that's what Christian men must do. Everything you have into this one effort. This is the whole ball game. Everything else is subsidiary to that. The management of your home, the management of your business, your recreations, all of it are subsidiary to the one objective in life. Get focused. Uh, men who are successful in what they do, if I can use a little parable here myself, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, when they are successful in what they do, you'll always find they're focused people. They don't have ten things going on, holding up all these balls in the air, trying to spin all the plates. No, they're focused on one or two things, and they do them well. Well, here's what happens to a Christian. All of a sudden, boom, he gets focused on the kingdom of God. That's it. That's the agenda of God. It's His agenda, not our agenda. His agenda becomes our agenda. And everything gets funneled into that angle. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether you are in full-time Christian ministry, whether you lead a parachurch organization, 
whether you're a banker or a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher, it doesn't matter what you do, we're all on the same agenda. And we're all doing what we do, whatever it is, to contribute the best we can contribute to the one agenda that we're all about. So I happen to be a teacher and a preacher. Fine, great, do it. You happen to be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. Fine, do it. But the point is we're all doing one thing. And we're all just simply taking our part in the kingdom of God. That's what this man got that Jesus is trying to show us. He realized he had a treasure that was worth selling all the little piddling stuff he had to get that huge treasure. And let me tell you something. Whatever it is you're piddling around with, your business, your investments, uh, your time, your recreations, all the piddling things that we do, they cannot be compared to the enormity of the kingdom of God. That's what this man found out. Now, I want you to notice one more thing about this before we leave these parables. Because, you know, we've, we've combined these two parables because the parable of the, of the pearl of great price is really of the, uh, of the same ilk. But notice one thing in that first parable in verse 44. That in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. In his joy. Take your, uh, leave your finger there in Matthew 13 and turn back to Psalms for just a moment. And in particular, turn to Psalm 27. I want to show you several verses in the Psalms that make this point. This is on page 970 in your Bibles. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. You see, David is taken up with the glory and the beauty of the Lord Himself. Look in chapter 37, Psalm 37, verse 4. This is page 982. He says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in Him. Find joy in Him. Then turn to Psalm 84. You'll see another example of, of the Christian's joy. 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So I'd rather be a servant in God's house than to own the riches of this world in their tents. That's what the psalmist is saying. Over and over again, you get this idea. And in Nehemiah, uh, we, we discovered some time ago that Nehemiah says to the people who are weeping and mourning over their sin, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So your strength comes from your joy. And your joy comes from knowing this is the best doggone investment you ever made in your life. It's going to pay dividends beyond anything you've ever dreamed of. And you know, if you get these promises today, hey, invest with us, we'll earn 20% a year. Folks, Wrap up your pocketbook and run the other direction as high speed of rate as you can. These people are just going to scam you and take your money. But here you're being promised interest rates of billions of percentages. It's outrageous. And you believe it. Why? Because Jesus is one who has integrity. He's the Lord. He was raised from the dead. He has shown us that the impossible is possible. 
and he's inviting us to make this investment. We do it with joy because we know it's the best deal we ever made. So the investment you're making in this life uh, cannot be compared to the investment that will be made in the life to come. And that's the reason that when Jesus was on the cross in all of his agony, he took up his cross, he died for us, he fulfilled the mission that God gave him to fulfill to save our souls. And we're told about that episode in Jesus' life that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. For the joy set before him, Jesus, even on the cross, was contemplating pure, unadulterated joy with the Father. So when you face the cross of Christ, and of course we all do because we're told you can't follow Him without taking up the cross. You can't follow Him without dying to, uh, you can't follow Him without dying to yourselves and taking on the abuse that comes from someone who's following Christ. Don't ever lose your joy, brothers. Because if you lose your joy, you're losing your connection with Christ. Because when Christ was on the cross, he had joy in his heart, even as he groaned with agony. The joy was set before him of living forever and ever with his Father and reigning with him and gathering you into his presence. So when you're suffering for the gospel, when you're taking abuse or persecution, even of the most subtle kinds, thank God and rejoice. Because uh, you are being used of the Lord to warn people about the great day of reward that is coming and the great day of judgment, which leads us, of course, to the next parable. Let's look at uh, verses 47 through 50 for just a moment. And this uh, teaches us that the kingdom is of great consequence. The kingdom is of great consequence. So just as we are motivated by joy in contemplating the big um, returns on our investment. And of course, C.S. Lewis you know, once said, the problem with men is not that they're too lustful, it's that they're not lustful enough. That, uh, he, and he makes a comparison. You remember what Lewis says? He says, we're all like kids uh, who are sitting in the middle of a, of a dirt road on a rainy day making mud pies. And someone tells us it's time to go to the shore on holiday. And we don't want to go because we've never been to the shore and we know that we like making mud pies. And he said, we're like kids making mud pies who've been invited to the shore and we don't want to go because we just don't know any better. And he, Lewis makes the point, we need to learn to lust better. <laughs> the shore is a lot better than mud pies and the kingdom of God is a lot better than what you've got. So uh, we need to learn to lust or to desire even more than we were instead of less. Uh, some of you are going to take that the wrong way and you're going to go home and say, honey, you can't believe what the preacher told me today. <laughs> That's just the way it goes. Uh, it's the danger of preaching. Uh, verse 47, we see that the kingdom is of great consequence. Now, in some ways, this parable seems simply to be repeating the parable of the weeds and its interpretation. Uh, some of the language is identical. And gentlemen, this is intentional on Jesus' part and on Matthew's part. Matthew is stressing something extraordinarily important for us. Let's get it in our heads. There is a day of judgment coming. And most of the time, I can say as a preacher, uh, we don't focus on this topic. 
We don't hear this very much today. It's certainly not very popular. It certainly is. You, you don't hear any, anybody say, you know that church in so-and-so city, man, it's just booming. It's just growing so big, you know. And, and you know why? They talk about judgment over there. Well, I never heard that story. Uh, judgment messages usually clear out uh, big mobs, uh, and it's not very popular. It's not in the church growth handbook, I'll tell you that. Um, but it's in the Bible. And men and women of God are supposed to give themselves to this theme, obviously. And Jesus is primarily teaching His disciples and wants them to give themselves to this theme, obviously. So it's very important for us not only to be contemplating the great reward of the kingdom of God, to be, but, be, but to be contemplating also the dire consequences of those who don't sell everything they have to get that treasure. There are dire consequences of this. And we must look at it again. The reason we must look at it again is because Matthew gives it to us again. And he didn't give it to us to say, oh, I won't read that, we just read that. No, he's giving it to us again to walk through it again. To be sure it gets drilled into our numbskull heads that there is a judgment coming and it makes a difference about the future and it makes a difference about how we live right now and what we do with our resources. This is a matter of great consequence. And it reminds me of when Ravi Zacharias, one of the finest public defenders of the faith, I think, alive today, talks about his own conversion. You know, he grew up in India as a, as a Hindu boy, but he decided at some point in his life after he almost committed suicide because of his despair, which if you understand Hinduism properly, you probably want to commit suicide too. But he, he uh, it's a very dark, depressing religion. But he was so dark and depressed in his own mind, he almost took his own life. Tried to, actually. And in his recovery, he begins asking himself some big questions, philosophical questions about what life is all about. He begins to survey the religions of the world. And if you remember in his spiritual biography, uh, the name of which I've forgotten, uh, From East to West or something like that? From East to West. Uh, walking from East to West. You will read that he says he sorted, the first way he sorted out the religions was to say, I'm just going to consider the ones that are of great consequence. Well, that eliminated Buddhism and Confucianism and Hinduism. I mean, basically, what difference does it make whether you believe in those things or not? So he said the only two religions that really said it made a real difference whether you believed what they were saying and, do, and whether you did what they were doing was Islam and Christianity. Those are the only two that made any difference, at least from their own profession. So he gave himself to study those two religions, and I won't go into the rest of the story uh, because it's not relevant for us today. But you see the point. Why would you spend a whole lot of time worrying yourself over something that doesn't make much difference? But if Christ says it makes a difference... Or if Muhammad says it makes a great difference, you probably ought to check into those two. Somebody's making some grand claims. And they're the only two where the really grand claims about your future existence are being made. I suggest you check into them. I suggest you compare them. And I suggest when you do, you're going to follow Jesus Christ. And here you have that it is of great consequence because there is going to be the judgment of the unrighteous and of the righteous. Now, I'd like for us to notice several things about this judgment which is coming, which is in the parable. He says uh, that the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. 
When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Now, let's look at his interpretation in verse 49. He tells us what this parable means. First of all, he tells us, there are four things I want to make clear here that he says about the final judgment. First of all, it's certain. Look at these words in verse 49. So it will be. So it will be. So what you just heard about the fish being gathered in, and they're going to be separated, and some of the fish are going to be destroyed, so it will be. Do you believe the Word of God? Do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ? Then believe it. There will be a day of judgment. It's hard for us to matter, uh, imagine because it will, be, it will be discontinuous in many ways with what we know now in our existence. I'm just thinking of the little videos that we saw of the folks in Russia the other day when that asteroid came through and lit up their sky and a few moments later boomed their skies and injured about a thousand people. I mean, can you imagine yourself just driving down Poplar and all of a sudden the sky just lights up brilliantly and then you, you drive a little bit longer and then kaboom, the whole world seems to be coming to an end? You say, well, maybe this is it. No, it's just an asteroid. Well, I want to say to you that was just a warning. That was just a warning. Because one day there's going to be a great boom that's going to destroy everything that we know. And it's going to light up the skies with the very face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be just like that. Driving to work some morning when you least expect it. Just like those Russian folks who did not know what in the world hit them. Neither will this world know what hits them. There you have a little parable. Just a little inkling of what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ returns and renews all things. But He will renew them just like our bodies are renewed. Our bodies go in the ground dead. They rot. They dissolve. They turn into dust. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. How many times have I said that? And it really is going to happen. Earth to earth. We were made from earth. We return to earth. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We're dust. That's it. So we dissolve. We're destroyed. But then Jesus Christ comes back and we're regenerated. Our bodies are resurrected. You say, how do you resurrect dust? Just watch Him. And so it will be with the entire world. It too will die. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and then it will be resurrected, something new. Yes, it will be continuous with the old in some sense, just as Jesus' resurrected body is continuous with His old body. But when they looked at Him, they didn't recognize Him because it was discontinuous as well. And also He could walk through walls. It was a new kind of body. And so it will be with this old world, gentlemen. So whatever you're saving up here, whatever monuments you're trying to build for yourself, whatever memorials you want to your name in this world, it is totally useless. Make your investment in the resurrected world, in the new heavens and the new earth, because certainly the judgment is going to come and there is judgment on this world. The world in which we're living is condemned. It's under judgment. It's like starting a new office and decorating your new office in a condemned building in Memphis. The government has condemned it. It's going to be torn down. But you go in and get your wife to start decorating your new office on the fifth floor. It's ridiculous. And so it is ridiculous to decorate your place here and to get yourself invested here primarily when the whole place is under condemnation. So we're being saved out of a condemned world. 
so that we can live in a non-condemned world that He is going to provide for us by resurrection. So it's certainly going to happen. Notice secondly, uh, when it's going to happen. At the close of the age. So it will be at the close of the age. So it is certain at a given time. At the end of the age. So you have to wait, gentlemen. You have to wait. And that's why you have to wait. Because God has appointed the day for your inheritance. And God has appointed the day to judge your enemies. God has appointed the day to make everything right. And I don't know why He's appointed the day He's appointed, but I know this. It's infinitely wise and gracious and holy and just. And we will wait for that day with confidence and joy. Then notice, I'm going to actually come up with five here. The third thing I want you to know is that, notice is how thorough this is going to be. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Now notice, some people think this parable of the net has to do with the gospel ministry that goes out and gathers people into the church. But notice, he's talking not about evangelists, he's talking here about angels. So this is parallel to verses 40, 41, 42 in the wheat and the tares parable where it's at the end of the age and the angels are doing the gathering. So this is not about evangelism. This is about the final judgment, this net going out. It's the angel's net going out, gathering in all of humanity for the judgment. And that's what the angels are going to do. They're going to gather in the entire humanity to appear before the judgment seat of God, the judgment seat of Christ. And there the wicked and the righteous will be judged according to their faith uh, variously. And notice it will be thorough. Every, everyone will be separated. And it will be done under the service of the angels. And so it will be a very thorough and careful investigation. Now, if we are mere humans and we do not have uh, the uh, salvation of Jesus Christ to account for us, we will be judged strictly on what we've done. How many here want to face a perfect God who knows everything about you based upon your performance? Just raise your little dirty hand. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody here is that stupid to try to face God's judgment with your performance. And some of you have done some wonderful things. And, and some of your neighbors might be tempted to think, you know, I bet old Joe, I bet he could lift up his hand. No way, Joe's not that stupid. Joe knows the ugly things that he's thought, the lust of his heart, the wicked things he said to his wife, all kinds of things. And we've all, we're all that way. No one is going successfully to face the judgment of the Lord based upon our performance. But those who have been raised up as Christ's people happen to be wearing a beautiful garment. It's called the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which was given to them in toto when they put their faith in Him. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He gives you credit for His righteousness, all of it. And you are protected, not because of your intrinsic good, but because of your extrinsic good, which has been imputed to you from the outside. It's called alien righteousness. Now you have some intrinsic righteousness that's growing, but it's not perfect, and it won't pass judgment. No matter, when you're at your best, you are a sinner. When you did your best deed ever in your life, you had mixed motives. None of that would pass the bar of God's exam. 
except for the fact that you're His child by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ and you're clothed with a perfect righteousness where the motives are pure, the actions are pure, and there's no inconsistency whatsoever. That's the record you have when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so when you appear before Him in all of His pure, piercing discernment and judgment, you will pass completely. And you will be amazed. And you'll continue to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound for the rest of eternity. Because you'll be amazed at what the righteousness of Jesus Christ has actually won for you because you simply put your faith in Him. So it will be thorough. It will be certain. It will be at a given time. It will be thorough. Fourthly, it will be permanent. This is not purgatory. This is permanent. Throw them, verse 50, into the fiery furnace. When's the last time you saw a fish wiggle its way out of a fiery furnace? This is awesome, brothers. It's terrifying. It's real. And anyone who is not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ must face this. And there's no way out. There's no second chance. Why would there not be a second chance? The reason is the first chance was just. It was fair. We were made in the image of God. We fell by our own sin. And ever since then, we have been willfully sinning against God. We've had second chance, third chance, fourth chance, and fifth chance. And we failed on all of them. So let's not talk about a second chance. You can talk about a 400,000th chance. But justice doesn't demand any second chances or 400,000 chances because we had our chance and we willfully rejected it. That's what human beings have done. And this is the consequence of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when we were commanded not to. And we must face the reality of what the Bible says about it. And Jesus, more than any of the other prophets in the Bible, speaks of judgment more often than any of the prophets of the Bible. And he does so because he, more than the prophets, knows that it is real. And he, more, more than the prophets, knows how terrifying it is. And he, more than all the prophets, wants to plead with all of the world to put their faith in him, to escape and to flee from the wrath to come. When John the Baptist was preaching, he just simply said, flee from the wrath to come. God's judgment is just and it is permanent. And then lastly, notice it is dreadful. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's what's said in the Bible about the judgment. It's said twice uh, in these series, this series of seven parables. So obviously it is true, it is certain, it is dreadful, and it is to be part of our daily thinking and contemplation. We're dealing with matters of grave consequence when we're dealing with the kingdom. Yes, indeed, we're dealing with something that is of great value, but is of great consequence. We must devote ourselves uh, to this task. If we, love, if we love God and we love God's image put upon every single man, woman, boy, and girl in this world, and we love humanity, we will for sure seek to warn them about the judgment of God. And when you find times of great revival, gentlemen, you'll find that this is made very clear to the populace. So if you ever want to know if you're in a season of revival, uh, one hint, it's not the only one, but one hint will be, is there clear declaration 
of the judgment of God upon sinners. Is that clearly there? Does everyone know it? Has everyone come under the sound of the judgment of God? Is everyone humbled? Is everyone rightly uh, bowed before Him? And is everyone then seeking uh, the salvation that Jesus Christ alone offers from that judgment? That always takes place in revival. If you look at the Great Awakening, uh, you'll find that most of George Whitfield's preaching and John Wesley's preaching during the Great Awakening uh, in, in uh, UK and then also here in the States, a good deal of their preaching had to do with the law of God condemning sinners. And then they would preach the gospel and the new birth uh, as the only relief for this judgment of God. That is what revitalizes people. That's what leads to life is when they see what nothing leads to. Nothing leads to judgment. Now, lastly, uh, in the few minutes we have left, let's look at these closing verses and what these verses teach us, not by way of parable, but just by the way of uh, Jesus' teaching and of the narrative uh, that uh, Matthew gives us, that the kingdom is not only of great value and of great consequence, but it is a great mystery, a great mystery. We're talking about things that, that we can't see yet, things that seem to be fantastical, like Disney World, things that seem to be so extraordinary that they're, they're unbelievable, they're incredible. And to put our faith in such things as this is a great mystery. Why would anyone do this? Well, look at verse 51, and we see that it is revealed to the disciples. The reason we believe it is that it's revealed to us by God's kindness and grace. So He saves people not only by sending His Son to pay the price for anyone who will put their faith in Him, but He sends His Spirit to enlighten our minds and enable us to believe the unbelievable, to give credibility to the incredible. So He reveals it to His disciples. He says, have you understood all these things? And they said to Him, yes. Is that not amazing, these knuckleheads? Yes, they get it. Is it not amazing that you get it, you knucklehead? Yes, it's amazing that you get it. You actually believe these things. Why do you believe? It's the kindness of God that you hear this invisible, uh, fantastic kingdom being declared and you actually believe in it. Go figure. But notice this in verse uh, 52. Uh, it is hidden in the Old Testament so that Yes, it seems like this is something brand new, but it was already really there. And Jesus teaches it this way. He said to them, look, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom, so every scribe who really is looking for the kingdom is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So he says, any follower of the Torah, any real Jew who's looking for the kingdom, He'll bring out from the old, that would be the Torah, the revealed Word of God in the Old Testament, and He'll also bring out the new, the person of Jesus Christ, who fulfills everything in the Old Testament. When you look at the Old Testament, it's about a kingdom. God is the king. You say, where do you get that? First two chapters of Genesis that we studied some years ago. What is God showing Himself to be? He's the creator of all these Egyptian gods the sun, the moon, the stars, the water, the rivers, everything. God made them. And the Egyptians are so stupid as to make those gods. 
And Moses is saying to the Israelites, do you realize there is one God and he made all those stupid Egyptian gods? And they're not gods, they're creatures. Creatures of the one God. So from the very beginning, God has enthroned His King. And on the seventh day, He takes His throne and delights Himself in everything that He's made. What a great King He is. And then, of course, Abraham is given to us as a sort of king. And then we go on through the history of of Israel. And what do we come to? David, who is the one who's given the dynasty in 2 Samuel 7, 14. He's given the promise of the dynasty. And we have there the famous... A passage where God says that He'll establish His kingdom, His dynasty through David. And who is Jesus but the son of David? And then when you get to Daniel, you see that all these kingdoms, whether it's the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, they'll all pass away before the mighty kingdom of the Son of Man. So everything in the Old Testament, rightly understood by a scribe, was pointing toward this massive kingdom that was coming. And a real scribe, the one who's really paying attention to the Bible, will be looking into the present day to see how it's being fulfilled. And here comes finally the Messiah, the King, who fulfills everything that was foretold in the Old Testament. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who rightly understands the Old Testament believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. If they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they do not understand their Old Testament. That's simple. And they are, as Paul says, cut off from the kingdom. In Romans 11. So any person who claims to be a follower of God in the Old Testament and doesn't believe in Jesus is speaking out of two sides of his mouth. He's not following God. God gave his son as the consummation of all of his promises in the Old Testament. And you reject his son and tell me you're following the Old Testament? You're a liar. Or very, very confused or both. And that's what Jesus is saying. A scribe looking for the kingdom Bring something out of the old and something out of the new out of his treasures. Lastly, you'll notice in verses 53 through 58, we have a narrative here. And look what happens to Jesus and look what happens to you when you believe in the kingdom and you start to go away from church and then you go home. And everybody says, what makes this person think he's so special? Isn't he just a carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? We know this guy. Isn't he just like us? Isn't he kind of acting like Noah, who thinks he's something special, building a big ark in his backyard? <laughs> and everybody says, Noah, what you building that ark for? Oh, well, there's coming a flood. Oh, yeah, good, good, Noah. Keep it up, buddy. And then you whisper to your neighbor, that boy's nuts. And that's what they're saying about you. You go home and they say, isn't he Bill and Mary Amherst's son? Isn't he? Isn't he just this, that, and the other, isn't he? They just, what makes him think he's so special? He's just like one of us. And they said that about Jesus. And, and of course, we know later, even his family wondered about him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And that's an amazing statement. I want you in your small groups to think about that one. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The power of unbelief, gentlemen. How tragic to live in a city like Memphis with men who have been taught the gospel and then they don't believe it. The power of unbelief. So that Jesus looks at that city and says, you know, 
I couldn't even do miracles there because of the power of their unbelief. How tragic it would be if we lived in a city with men like us who study the Bible and then don't believe it. And thus, in some way I don't understand, seeming to block or impede the very work that God is willing to do in our city. I'm quite convinced that if revival ever comes to Memphis, Tennessee, it's going to, one of the reasons it's going to be that the various ethnic groups, especially black and white, have finally done their business together and have started loving each other and trusting each other. And we're going to see it change in the face of the churches and in all of our businesses. And we're going to see that the, the business equity in this city is shared among all racial groups and not held in the hands of, of the few Caucasians here. And I'm going to, we're going to see some other social justice take place where the church actually is acting like family together, sharing together. And when we act like we don't believe the kingdom, we're in some ways keeping the work of God from taking place here in our beloved city. I'm, I'm stunned by this verse, 58. I don't even know how to explain it, except to say we all need to be duly warned. If there's some way that we've been given the word of God to believe or to practice, and we're not practicing it, of all people in this city, those of us who believe the Bible and are here studying it, don't put it into practice. We're committing a great, great crime against our own city. Because how will the works of God be done here if people don't even believe what they've been taught in the Bible? It really is an awesome thing to be taught the kingdom of God. It is of great value. It is of enormous consequence. And it is a deep mystery that must continue to be cultivated in our hearts uh, all the time. Or get a shotgun. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for granting us the kingdom. And we pray that we will be good stewards of the treasure we've discovered. And that we will be moved to sell everything that we have, to lay everything aside, to mobilize all of our resources into one thing, the advancement of the kingdom. That you will teach us of its great consequence and make us grateful that this great mystery has been revealed to us. Help us to believe, O Lord, and help us in our unbelief by your great mercy to lead us on to a clear vision of who you are and what the kingdom is all about. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Good day, gents.